abstract presented to you by the Western Student Research Conference. The abstract aims to get undergraduates in Canadian universities interested in pursuing a diverse range of research. The WSRC is a multidisciplinary research conference hosted at Western University. Now this two-day conference that will be held on March 27th and 28th is a place where ideas truly meet. So make sure to check out our logistics team interview if you want to get a better view of what it'll look like virtually this year. In this episode, we have an amazing discussion with the Director of Research at Deloitte Canada, Duncan Stewart. We talk about his fascinating research and the most important research skills a researcher can have. Duncan specializes in technology, media, and telecommunications. He has worked with clients across the world to help them understand how changes in technology, among other things, affect their business strategies. So if you are an undergrad student interested in research, you have come to the right place. My name is Janica and I'm the creative lead of the abstract. And I am Lev. I am uh, one of the co-chairs for this conference. Uh, unfortunately, we're a little short staffed today. Ishida could make it, but, uh, but Janica and I, we can, uh, we can definitely hold down the fort here. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with us today. Janica, hi, Lev. Thanks for having me on. You started off in chemistry, and now you are the director of research at Deloitte. So some skills really don't change from field to field. Would you say that the skills you acquired from each field you worked in made you stand out in a way? There are some differences, right? You know, uh, my knowledge of FDA clinical trials is not terribly useful to what I do in tech, media, and telecom. Although I suppose in a world of COVID-19, we we all sort of need to be experts in clinical trials, at least for the next few months. Um, but by and large, I would argue that there are there are two kinds of, of things that we're looking at. One of them is domain expertise. And that's the stuff that's relevant to chemistry or biotech or, or what, what have you. Um, those, those obviously, there's a learning curve. And sometimes if you become really an expert in one area and then you change areas, it's much less relevant. But the core skills of being able to read rapidly, remember stuff, uh, make links between things, uh, how to do uh, a good search, how to recognize good citations versus bad citations. All of those things are relatively constant across multiple domains. So uh, when I was finishing my master's degree, which I never ended up getting, by the way, I was kind of thinking, I'm out of school. I don't need to do research anymore. My next job was a research assistant. The one after that was a research analyst. And now I'm a research director. Uh, uh, back in 1990, I thought I'd never do research again, and it's been 30 years where I've done nothing but research, always using the same skills. I was very curious. You mentioned that you did your research um, on like pretty much balance of the Cold War. Uh, I think you mentioned last time it was tech development is going to influence like a, was it like a potential nuclear war with the Soviet Union or was it just the balance of power? <laughs> well, I mean, there was no actual war, thank goodness, which is quite a good thing. But what we were looking at, so 19, so this was about 1988, 89, 90, right? And what I was looking at is the, the Russians and the Americans, Soviets and the Americans, both had a constellation of satellites, and they had a whole bunch of rockets, and they had a bunch of ways of trying to shoot down rockets. And the funny thing was that even as late as 1989, the ability to shoot down an intercontinental ballistic missile was very, very poor. Uh, the computers of the time were not nearly powerful enough. 
But if we looked at new technologies, new computer technologies, things like lasers and so forth, technology could potentially upset the balance of power and shift from uh, a stalemate between offense and defense and shift into one where either it would be more defensive or more offensive. And that had some important implications uh, for what was called strategic studies. So I ended up doing a lot of work on this because it was, if you think about it, you're, you're probably too young. You were probably born after I was writing this, but, but trust me as a guy who was there, right about 1988, 89, 90, computers started getting a lot more powerful really, really quickly. So the reason that was such an interesting topic is that was what was at a, what's called an inflection point in technology, when technology has the potential to become a, what the term we use is disruptive innovation. Yeah, I think it's more people are more worried about like cybersecurity now. Absolutely, 100%. That is, that is the significant threat now. Uh, we're much more worried about a cyber attack than an actual physical nuclear attack. I guess you mentioned that, you know, after you, you did your master's, you're like, I'm not going to do research, yay. And then you went into like a research assistant position. How does that, you know, can, can you like sort of like walk us through that little? Well, walk is the right word. Lev, walk is the correct answer. So there <laughs> I was in grad school and I wasn't very happy. I didn't want to go be a professor. My uh, wife at the time got pregnant uh, and we were going to have a baby. And so I needed a job. So I went out and I got a job actually as a messenger carrying around uh, stock market certificates and bond certificates uh, in uh, late 1989. And that was fine, but that wasn't a very good job. It paid minimum wage and stuff like that. So I, I kept my ears open and there was a job um, in what was called the research department at Scotia McLeod. So I ended up realizing that my feet were getting sore and I wasn't making enough money to feed a baby. So I went and got a job that paid me some money in research as it happened was one of the things that was hiring and was willing to pay. So you basically it just you just stumbled into it pretty much. You you had no you had no intention of doing it, but just came. No, no, it, it. it's much much worse than that. So I've got a funny story about this. So I don't know if if you're that financially oriented, but I started work at Scotia McLeod, and in the first week or so, I was on a computer writing up a, a morning research note, and I was typing everything into this form or this thing to be distributed the next morning. And I asked my boss, and I said, uh, Sam, I said, Sam. What does, uh, what does PE stand for? And he said, oh, well, that's a price earnings ratio. And I said, oh, cool. Now, oh, that makes sense. And I said, Sam, what does EPS stand for? And he said, that stands for earnings per share. And he looked at me and he said, why did we hire you again? So uh, I knew nothing at that point. I had never read the business page of a newspaper, but there's this thing called research skills and there's this thing called domain expertise. I started at Scotia not knowing anything at all about the domain, but having the right skills. Within three years, I was hired to be a portfolio manager at Canada's largest pension fund manager. So it shows you that you can acquire domain expertise. That's easy. Uh, it's the skills yeah. that are hard. Interesting, interesting. I guess we kind of wanted to dive into that a little bit as well. Um, your skills as a researcher, where, like, and, you know, I guess even you can say in the last few years, where have they differentiated you from, you know, competitors? So this is a great question. When you are an academic researcher, there years ago was a lot of pressure to do your research, 
publish as many important papers as possible that were as widely cited as possible. And in this way, you would become a more and more important researcher, eventually becoming a professor and getting tenure and writing books and all that good kind of stuff. The bias was strongly to trying to do research and publish the results. Recently, there has been a strong move in the field of academic research to what's called reproducibility. The idea that many academic studies need to be tested and reproduced to make sure that their findings are true uh, and that there has been no academic skullduggery involved. And there's an entire emerging discipline about reproducibility of scientific studies. So the focus on research, if I may paraphrase, has been be skeptical. <laughs> and that's new. We didn't used to be so skeptical in academic research. By and large, if the paper was good enough and passed peer review, everybody kind of went, okay, that's great. Interestingly, I, in 1990, moved from academia to business, to finance, where all of a sudden, um, once again, there was a strong tendency to publish research that uh, supported a point of view. This stock is a buy, for example. Interestingly, when I, in 1993, shifted to the buy side, when all of a sudden I was a portfolio manager, all of a sudden I had to put on a different hat. I had to assume that everybody was lying to me and I had to be super skeptical and my research skill shifted from trying to prove a point that I wanted made to all of a sudden disproving other people's points. This, in fact, is a much more important job, and it is something that over the last 25-ish years, I do all the time. The most useful skill I have found that differentiates what I do from anybody else, I'll give you an example. There's this uh, study out there that says the market for 3D printers was, I can't remember, uh, $15 billion a year or something like that. And I was like, wow, that's a lot, and it's growing. And I went, okay. And then I went and I actually did some research and I found the oh seven or eight largest 3D printing companies, okay? And they're public and they report their results every quarter and they're audited every year. So it's relatively easy. So what I did is I added up the numbers from the six or seven largest companies in the field. And if it's a $15 billion industry, normally the biggest companies would be about 80% of revenues. So I added up the revenues from the six or seven largest companies and it wasn't $12 billion as it should have been. It wasn't $10 billion. It wasn't eight, it wasn't six, it wasn't four. It, it was like 2.5. And the weird thing is the industry is supposed to be growing at like 50% per year. And those six or seven companies, their revenues were actually going down slightly. And I was like, okay, this is really cool. There is no way that the industry can actually be as big as people think it is. There's no way it's growing as fast if the largest if the largest players are shrinking. There's no way the little little companies are offsetting that. So it's just completely impossible. But the cool thing was I didn't even have to call up hundreds of 3D uh, companies, uh, you know, who buy stuff from 3D printers. All I had to do is go online and look at publicly disclosed audited numbers. That's the kind of research skill that I love because. Anybody can do it. Every single person who watches this interview, if they go away and they take away from, you know, Duncan, nice guy, he's got a great bookshelf, 
could use a little more hair. He seems like a smart enough guy, but he's no Albert Einstein. If the takeaway people have is good research skills come out of being moderately thoughtful, reasonably hardworking, and above all, skeptical, anybody can do this. That's the takeaway I want everybody to have. Good research. It's kind of like flossing. We can all do it. Most of us don't. Awesome. You know, I want to, obviously, you know, you're an expert on TMT. Wanted to sort of dive a little bit into how you see the industry now. How is COVID affecting TMT? So there's, there's a phrase, remember, I started off in chemistry. So I've got to, there's a thing in chemistry where we talk about a catalyst. Now I'm going to get detailed here because this actually matters. If I've got a solution of uh, hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, it will naturally degrade over time. But if I add I'm forgetting, I think it's permanganate. Uh, if I add uh, potassium permanganate to the solution, it goes whoosh, and, and the naturally occurring degradation of H2O2 into H2O plus uh, oxygen is accelerated uh, because the catalyst uh, lowers the reaction energy necessary for the reaction to occur, okay? Mm-hmm. A small amount, you just need to add a sprinkle of the catalyst to the reaction. It allows a reaction that was already occurring slowly and dramatically accelerates it. In the same way, COVID-19 has acted as a catalyst to multiple technology and telecommunications and media trends. Things that were already happening happen all at once. The phrase used by CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, was we have seen two years of progress in two months. And it's that fundamental idea. COVID-19 sped up what was already going on. By and large, COVID-19, aside from the wearing mask thing, um, by and large, COVID-19 hasn't introduced much new. Moving to the cloud, it was already happening, but it's happening faster. People watching streaming video, already a big thing, now a bigger thing. Commerce going online was already a trend. Now it's a bigger trend. Working from home, it was already growing. Now everybody's doing it. It was accelerated by the pandemic. It was not caused by the pandemic. Interesting. Do you see any sort of like catalyst that might happen that might push that trend backwards? Well, that's an, well I'm going to stick with my chemistry reaction because, uh, thanks, Lev, that's an interesting question. By and large, most chemical reactions are essentially irreversible. Uh, there are a few within, if you think about it, making H2O2 into breaking into its components, dead, dead easy, add some permanganate. Making it back together, very, very time consuming. You would require pressure and synthesis and so forth. Absolutely, uh, uh, there tends to be a, uh, an arrow called entropy which means that most our reactions are essentially one way. In the same way, we do not anticipate that most of the things that are occurring within the pandemic will be reversed entirely. Now, there is a subtle argument here. So let's use, um, in the United States, in I think it was April, 45% of all doctor visits were done virtually, either by phone, email, Uh, software tools or video calls. Uh, That was up from about 1% before. Uh, Nobody, when we have a vaccine and so forth, nobody is expecting it to stay at 40%. 
but it will be higher than it was before. Almost everybody expects telehealth, telemedicine, video visits to be much higher, like five times, 10 times higher post-pandemic than before. So we may not stay at the peak that we saw during the pandemic, but the overall shift towards these uh, technology and telecom trends appears to be more or less permanent. Nobody's expecting e-commerce to go back to where it was two years ago. You have done a lot in terms of diversity and inclusivity in gender and race. Would you mind elaborating more on that? So I have a, a focus on this, which is the role of gender and also race as well as other forms of diversity and inclusion, uh, but it's mainly about gender and race uh, for now, uh, within the area of especially technology. Uh, so STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. Historically, those areas have been badly underrepresented. As an example, uh, usually the number thrown around is that somewhere around one-fifth of all STEM workers are women, uh, meaning 80% men, 20% uh, uh, women. Uh, and that number has not actually been changing that rapidly. This is a problem. This is a crisis. Uh, why? Well, one, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Let's start with that. You know, never mind the ROI of gender diversity. How about we do it because it's the right thing to do? It's the fair thing to do. Let's start with that. How about we not discriminate against people of color just because it's wrong to do that, okay? Never mind the ROI arguments, okay? Are we all agreed I've made that point? Because that's a really important point. The second point is there is an ROI. Uh, tech has a talent shortage. We need people of all genders, all colors, everything. We need the widest possible pool so that we can have the best possible tech and telecom industry. Now, what I have been trying to do is I'm tracking this in multiple countries. So I've done work in the UK, the US, Canada, uh, the Nordics, and I, I write papers about this. Uh, what I'm focusing on is how difficult it is to move the needle. Now, this is disappointing to me. It's disappointing to everybody. But the problem is that there is a certain amount of turnover within the industry. There's only so many people hired per year. And even if you hire 50% women and 50% men from now on, it takes decades to get to parity. But there's another problem. One of the biggest problems in STEM, in tech, in IT, in computer science, in all of this stuff, uh, financial services as well, by the way, is not that there aren't enough women in the pipeline. It isn't that there aren't enough women studying STEM. It isn't that there aren't enough women being hired. It's that the tech industry is having trouble keeping women. The problem is that women join the industry and then leave it at a rate four to five times higher than men leave it. There are a number of theories as to why that is, but uh, some of it is long work hours and so forth. But some of it is also a culture that is unfriendly to women in a number of ways. Now, Here's the critical point. Everything I just said applies to people of color as well. By and large, uh, there is discrimination and harassment, not just of women, but of people of color within the tech industry as well. So the way to make the tech industry better, I believe, is not only to recruit more women and more people of color, but also to stop harassing them when they join the industry. Because, I mean, if you think about it, inviting them in only to make them feel unwanted is a disastrous solution. So I really think that, that changing the culture 
is in and of itself the single biggest step forward we can have. That's really interesting. You mentioned that your wife, Barbara Stewart, is a researcher also, particularly specializing in women in finance. So what are the good parts and the bad parts of having both partners in research? Um, so the good parts, there's a lot of them. Uh, I love this question. So uh, one of them is we speak each other's language. I, I, I can talk about what I'm working on. Barbara can talk about what she's working on and we can propose ideas. It's, so one of the things we do is we're hikers, we're big hikers. We can go on a hike, seriously, six hours, seven hours, and we will not stop talking about what we're working on and thinking about and coming up with ideas and themes. And we will literally do it for, you know, what's it, 360 minutes in a row. And, and I love that. It's a, as a couple, that's really fun. Uh, another really fun advantage is that as we're both researchers, um, we both love reading. We can both work in the same place at the same time. I'm on my computer, Barbara's on her computer. The other thing is that the output of researchers, especially when you get to be my age, is that you're often asked to go somewhere and give a speech. You know, here's a paper I've just written. Uh, Duncan, can you go talk about it? And Barbara, here's a paper you've just written. Can you go talk about it? So what we've ended up doing a bunch of times is actually, uh, this is kind of fun, uh, a couple of times we've actually even ended up speaking at the same conference one after each other. So that means we get to travel together. Um, are there any disadvantages? Yeah, we probably uh, both overuse spreadsheets. So, you know, that's kind of embarrassing. No, no, that, that, that's not even a joke. Like, you know, sometimes we've got our, our, our week planned in terms of dinners and we're sending spreadsheets back and forth. And, and that's just so geeky that it's actually embarrassing. I don't think it's embarrassing. So you said that you talk a lot about like, you know, your work with your wife then. How much, how many of the ideas that you have in like your TMT predictions, how much of those are actually your wife then? No, Lev, this is a true story. Barbara and I were in the south of France at our place where we go hiking and we were on a rooftop and she said, what's this stuff here? And I said, that's a TV antenna. And she said, well, those aren't connected anymore. And I said, actually, yes, they are. Uh, in many countries around the world, uh, a non-trivial percentage of the people still get some of their TV, not over cable, not from a satellite, but over a traditional TV antenna. You know, the kind of stuff that was, you know, not around when I was a kid, but stuff that was around when your parent, your grandparents were kids. Anyway, Barbara looked at that and said, do most people know that? And I said, I don't, I don't think so. And she said, would that make a good prediction? Anyway, I wrote a prediction 100% based on Barbara saying, you know, you should write about TV antennas. Interesting. Interesting. Well, it's good to see the collaborative nature of that. That's awesome. There we go. I did my first year in politics. I didn't like it. So I switched into economics. Um, you were all over the place you mentioned as well. Um, do you have any advice for somebody like, you know, especially a student, how do they find their field of, you know, interest, field of research, something that they would be passionate about? I took more of a scenic route. I took more classes. I, if over my shoulder, if I tilt it up, there's actually a, a bunch of books that are every single Greek comedy and, and, and tragedy that were ever written. And I've read all those. There's other books there on Russian history, and I've read all of those, plus the chemistry, plus the physics, plus the biology, plus the economics, plus the history. You get the idea. Uh, are either of you familiar with the television show Jeopardy? Yes. Uh, I've heard of it. I'm, okay, Janica, have you ever seen I'm, it, Janica? I'm boring. 
That's okay, Jenica. Have you ever watched it? Yeah, I I watched it every day. So uh, have you ever met a contestant, uh, somebody who's been a contestant on Jeopardy? I haven't met them. Well, you have now because I was a contestant on Jeopardy in 2011. Really? Now, as some of you will know, Alex Trebek uh, died at 80 of pancreatic cancer in uh, uh, November 8th of this year. Uh, great Canadian. And, and I, think, I think it's an interesting thing. Be, the term for it is a polymath. People on Jeopardy don't just know trivia. We also end up knowing a lot of important stuff, too. Yes, yes, yes. Knowing who won American Idol. Not that I do. Uh, but knowing uh, it's probably a question I got wrong anyway. But no, knowing who won American Idol or what the state flower of Colorado is might not be that useful. But knowing a lot about literature and science and history and politics and economics and, you know, I mean, uh, the average person, you ask the average person, name an economist and they'll look at you blankly. The average person who's been on Jeopardy can probably name 10. You know, uh, that kind of thing, and, and not just name them, but know kind of where they fit and what they, you know, Keynesian versus Friedman versus David Ricardo versus, you, you get the idea, right? I believe if I were to give any advice to a student, it is read widely, study widely. It's called a university because it's like the universe. Everything is there. Take advantage of that. It's possible to absolutely be too head down, tunnel vision, focused only on your major, focused only on the required courses. And I think, I think that's not the best way of doing it. There you go. It is like reading a book. You can interpret it in any way, but those overall interpretations make the book even more valuable. Interpreting it through a scientific approach or through, through a historical approach. The wider your interests and knowledge, the richer and deeper and more complex and layered the world becomes. That feels like not a bad thing. Definitely not. On that point, though, if you say the more wide your like, interest is, the more complex the world is, don't you understand it less then? I get, like, I'm just assuming if the world becomes more complicated, doesn't it become less easy to understand it? Well, I mean, this is this is a famous thing, Lev. Uh, people back years ago, like four or five hundred years ago, it was possible for somebody like Isaac Newton or uh, Francis Bacon or Leibniz or whoever, you know, some genius of their time to actually be a world leader. Innovation and knowledge and, and adding to the fundamental knowledge across multiple fields. That's almost impossible today. The people who are pushing the boundaries of AI are not physicists. You know, they, they're too different. It, therefore, in order to be a leader, you need to be a specialist. Lev, absolutely, absolutely. However, I would make an argument that people who know more than just their one vertical silo are better able to see connections between things. And that's most frequently where breakthroughs occur. So there is absolutely a, so Isaiah Berlin, a little bit of a signed reading for you here, speaking of research, Isaiah Berlin wrote a very important uh, essay uh, many years ago called the the Fox and the Hedgehog, or it might be the Hedgehog and the Fox. Uh, But uh, that talks about the virtues of knowing either one thing very well or the virtues of knowing many things, but in less depth. So it's a, it's a fascinating essay, uh, very much worth reading for 
you both as well as everybody who's watching this. If somebody wanted to, you know, end up where you are today, again, I recognize that your your route was very unorthodox, but what would they, you know, what would they have to sort of do? Um, where would they have to focus their research, their studies, you know, whatever it might be, where would they have to, you know, put their time into be where you are today? Believe it or not, there's an easy answer for that. Oh. Write your own job description. Invent your own job every single time. I started at Royal Trust Capital Management, a pension fund firm, and they were doing tech investing one way. And I said, why don't you create this kind of fund to solve your problem that way? And they said, that's actually a good idea. Who should, who should we have to manage that fund? Ooh, 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 I know somebody, me. So they gave it to me. Then I said, there's no firm in Canada that specializes in managing money this way. So I went out and started my own firm. Had the most fun you could have for five or six years. Joined Deloitte and, and said, you know, why don't you, why don't you write research like this? And they went, well, we've never done it that way. Why would we do that? And I said, well, because of these reasons. They said, okay, that's pretty good. And boom, I've now spent, what is it, 13 years having the most fun in the world because I love my job because I wrote the job description. Number two, I'm really good at it because I obviously wrote it to fit my own strengths. When you, when you write your own job description, usually you're the best person for that job. Well, that's, that's very interesting because it's it's a way to kind of branch out as well. The last question, it's a very special question, is if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Um, um, I like dogs. I, my dog is currently out for a walk, but uh, I actually, I think you can see, hang on. Yes, there's pictures of dogs over my shoulder. So there's nothing but dogs over there. Why would I be a dog? Because uh, I like dogs. I like, I like people a lot. Uh, my dog and my wife, our favorite thing to do is to lie on a bed on a cold winter afternoon with a book in our hands, all snuggled together. Okay, the dog doesn't have her own book. But aside from that, you know what I mean. Uh, but, but conceptually, conceptually, uh, what do dogs love to do? They love uh, being around other people. They love being affectionate. They love their food, as do I, and they love going for six-hour walks. So pretty much that sounds like my ideal life. That was, a good, that was a good answer. Thank you so much for speaking about your experiences. I know I learned a lot from this conversation, and I know our viewers did too. Thanks for having me on. Wow, what an incredible conversation. Duncan provided so many great insights, and I'm so glad that everyone here was able to learn more about research, as well as how to evolve as a researcher. Make sure to follow us on our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at WesternSRC. Thank you for tuning in, and see you next time.